Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. It is good to sing praises to the Lord. You know, Psalm 103, it's a... <laughs> I, every time I start with a scripture, I'm about to say it's one of my favourites. <laughs> you can probably tell I, I love the word of the Lord. Um, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Sorry, did I say that right? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. We seem to be a pretty forgetful bunch, right? I love worship because it actually stirs my heart, my mind and my eyes to look up to the one who blesses us. Communion is supposed to do that. I hope it did. To lift you out of the earthly, you know, day-to-day dust and grind of your life, which can easily bury you into things, and to lift up and look at the benefits of the Lord. And one of the things that I love about the Lord, perhaps more than anything, the Lord who is high and lifted up, who is enthroned in the heavens, is sovereign over all, comes and abides with those who are contrite and lowly of spirit to revive the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I'm hoping today in wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not going to um, take you through the Sermon on the Mount again. (laughs) I'm going to just give you a bit of an overview, but I want to try and communicate to you a bit of an exploration of the nature of things. And uh, what this series not what it's talked about, but what the Word of God does and the nature of God and um, some of the challenges that presents. Uh, and, you know, what I'm attempting to do is essentially what I've been had, had the privilege to just had a bit of time to do in the last few weeks. There's, uh, there's a bushwalk up in Ellisbrook, which is only 10 minutes from here. Some of you may know it. And there's a little trail you can do around the, the waterfalls. It's a beautiful spot, but then there's a... Um, a fire break trail. And I've started exploring that fire break trail and I've walked out 45 minutes so far and it seems like if I could go forever. Of course, I'm not going to because then you have to turn around and get back. <laughs> but there's something about elevating yourself. It's interesting how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount by going up a mountain, isn't it? And the disciples coming to him. And it seems that apart from the the parallels it's expressing with God and Moses being represented of the people. Going up into places, just the mere physicality of it has a way of elevating your thinking and lifting you up and out. And and so, you know, I feel like the Sermon on the Mount, we've been almost buried in it. (laughs) Like we've been really getting deep into it. But when you come to the end of a series, you, you never really come to the end of it it's never wrapped up and done with. You never walk past, especially the Sermon Mount. It's something that it should be walked in you and out of you every day of your life. But it's good to get up and out and look back and try and understand it in a broader context. Uh, and I know Brett loves context, just as we all do, and he's really hit that point home, hasn't he? We've all been trying to get you to understand the word within its context 
and there's been a focus within those five chapters, but I just want to lift the lid, so to speak. So I'm going to do that by giving you a sweeping overview of certain things. And then I'm going to start talking about the nature of things. So there'll be three aspects of that. There'll be the, the nature of the problems it presents, the nature of the word, and then the nature of God. So hopefully by the end of it, um, you'll feel lifted. <laughs> you'll gain under, more understanding about the way God works, and you'll actually be find your heart being drawn to him. Because ultimately that's really what is going to compel you to do anything in life is discovering the love and the majesty <laughs> can't even talk about it. the magnificence the tenderness the mercy the, the sheer unfathomable wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ So, the Sermon on the Mount. I've actually ventured out. I am the least technical person of most people that I know. So, for me to actually come with a slide is quite a miracle. <laughs> and you'll be able to tell that I'm not very good at this. But I have two slides. <laughs> part A and Part B. And I'm doing this just to give you a flying overview. So, the point here is not to, for you to absorb all this information. Just, to, it's, just imagine you're sitting up on that hilltop with me and we're looking out over the hills and you're just going to get a vista. So, that first uh, slide is this one. And that's my best artistic attempt at a slide. <laughs> Uh, so, obviously, artistic-wise, probably one out of ten. <laughs> but hopefully conveying information in a picture, I give myself at least a seven. <laughs> now, the Sermon on the Mount is, this is my way of, that I've come to understand it. On the left-hand side, we start with that idea of spiritual formation. The Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here we enter into immediately... This understanding that it's not just doing something different that makes you a citizen of the kingdom. It's actually you become someone different. It's talking about your nature and your being. You're, you're becoming someone different. And for me, what struck me most deeply about the, the Beatitudes is the transformation process. Uh, and if you can't remember, if you haven't heard, that um, you weren't able to come when I started talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, um, this is the only entry point into the kingdom. I love Brett's picture of that accordion-style folder where if you want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, it all folds back into the Beatitudes which come back to the blessed are the poor in spirit. And then what happens in that being poor in spirit is you become aware of your bankruptcy, your your lack, your need before God and that's because of sin specifically and that causes you to mourn because you realise the impact of sin and that takes you into a place where you discover the love of God because he comes and comforts you and it starts working into you meekness which is this disposition that is yielded and unrebellious and it's it just yields to the working and the ways of God because you've come to understand his nature, his love, his mercy. You've come to trust him even when it hurts. And then because of that, you start finding that you hunger and thirst for righteousness. So this is a spiritual formation process. 
And that's why I put the arrow down. It's like poor in spirit. But then we go across to purpose, and that was salt and light. What is God trying to make of us? It's that we would become salt and light in this earth, bearing witness to him. That people would actually encounter, when they encounter us, the hope is that you're, there's enough of, your, of God in you, if I can put it this way. I know that's a bit of a, not a clunky way of saying it, that actually realize that the spirit of God is in you, and that there is sufficient like dying to the old self and the putting on the new, that they're starting to realize they're encountering something different about you, and actually it's the spirit of God in you. That on itself is, a, is just a, you know, an amazing thought, reality that Scripture speaks about that's worth dwelling on. Then we've got the interpretation of the law and the prophets. And Jesus is demonstrating that he is not just another option on the rabbi list of people you can follow. He is the authority over Scripture. And he takes the law and some of the fundamentals of that and he demonstrates and speaks about what does this really mean? And he goes straight to the matters of the heart. And then at the end of it, and I think Dave Ryder has done an amazing job the last three weeks of really honing in on this, this dimension that we're both confronted by and the truth, the reality that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that you're given a choice. We go through this whole process, and at the end of it, Jesus says, all right, choose. Just as an aside, I, I found this quite amusing. In, if you read through the, the book of Deuteronomy, there's some really interesting parallels. And right at the end of it, it's the blessings and the curses are presented. And then Moses says, here I've put before you death and life. You choose. He says, it's not too hard for you. you know, it's not like you have to go and seek out the word and go find it in the heavens or across the sea to get it. It's been put in you. It's near your mouth and your heart. And I just had a little joke in myself. This is not biblical, by the way. But by the time Jesus comes around, he gets to the end of it and he says, uh, I've put it before you. Here's life and death. Choose. Oh, by the way, it's narrow and it's hard and few find it. <laughs> so Moses is saying, this is easy. And Jesus goes, actually, no. <laughs> a couple of thousand years have gone by and really I just uh, maybe... <laughs> Moses, you're probably not quite right on that one. Anyway, that was just my little uh, biblical humour coming out. <laughs> so this is structure and when you have structure it helps you understand the flow and understand your ideas and spiritual formation really is centered around poor in spirit to become salt and light and Jesus comes to the matters of the heart and here's why it's a narrow gate is because any matter of the heart is challenging I don't know what your experience of life oh sorry so that's the seminal mount I almost forgot the second part of my slide <laughs> Um, so the second part of the slide is really just lifting it up. What is the Sermon on the Mount about? It's about discipleship. Jesus bringing the disciples in, and he's essentially saying, this is what it means to be a disciple. This is the path you're going to take. And this is the, the nature that you're going to be taking on. This is the kind of character and work that needs to be done in your heart. These are the ways in which you are to relate to me. Um, it's kind of really, and, you know, these are the areas you really need to come to understand how to put your trust in me, like provision. I mean, that's, that's a challenging one. You know, I remember years ago, I was in a ministry job, and uh, we were away, and in the second week we were away, we were, or the first, in fact, I don't think we even touched down. The message came through that it says, by the way, your $800 a month stipend that you could barely survive on in the first place it's finished because we've run out of money and we're away for four weeks. 
Uh, I got back with no job, negative uh, $16 and change in my bank account, and I had a $1,500 credit card debt because I was trying to survive. And uh, you, you're challenged. Does God really meet you when the rubber hits the road? So this is what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. It's actually challenging you at every place. And so... Um, and then Dave's, you know, you notice Dave talks a lot about the kingdom of God. It's a different reality. What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? So now we're starting to elevate into God's realm, God's reality. But above that, obviously, if there's a kingdom, there must be a king. So the higher level, again, is that we're talking about the lordship of Christ and submitting to his authority. Now, some people like to take Jesus on as their saviour, but... What does it mean to take Jesus on as Lord? And it's not sufficiently just you accept him as Lord when you get baptised or whatever that looks like or whatever the moment you met him. Making Jesus Lord of your life is actually something that you make, like you're making because you discover along the way how many areas in your life are not under his Lordship. And it's just his mercy and his grace that he is taking on this journey to sanctify us to bring every area in our life under his lordship, under his reign, to so it reflects his kingdom. But really, the theme that goes through the whole of the Bible that really is explicitly stated in Exodus, and it ends up in Revelation 21, is God's desire that he would have a people that are his people and that he would be their God. He wants a people that know him, that take on the nature of his son Jesus Christ and that he can dwell with for eternity. When you look at it like that, it's, it's a lot easier to come into the particulars. Do not be angry with your brother. Do not call him a fool because you'll be liable to judgment. In fact, if someone's got something against you, which is, here's the challenge, here's the, the pointy end of the stick, if you like, if someone's got something against you, you have to go and attempt to reconcile. And you know, normally you think, well, if they've got something against me, they should have to, they should have to come to me. Like if it's their, you know, they've got the problem. It's not my problem. It's their problem. No, no. Jesus is saying actually, their problem is your problem. It's kind of sticks, doesn't it? But God wants a people that will be His people, and to whom He can be their God. Now, I look at that and I find it's, it's both elevating and enthusiastic, encouraging, but it also helps me to manage with the particulars and the challenges that the Sermon on the Mount presents. It gives me understanding to what God is trying to accomplish in us. Because when you're challenged with things like love your enemies, you can get buried in that thing and not realise what is, what is the bigger picture that God is doing. Now, loving your enemies can be exceptionally painful. It's not because we have enemies per se. It's just when someone decides to make you their enemy, they can inflict a lot of pain. And so how do you love that? that that's a whole other topic of conversation. But the reality is God's word is unyielding. It's, it's challenging. So that's my overview. And I hope that as you look back on the Sermon on the Mount, that you can lift your eyes up and come out and see what God's greater purpose is and why this teaching is so profound and that it actually is pointing us to our eternal destination of being one with God in the fullness 
of the glory and the, the beauty and the wonder of what real humanity is supposed to be like. That's an amazing vision. Unfortunately, we just have to wait until Jesus returns for it to be completely <laughs> fulfilled. So that's the slide. If anyone wants a copy of it, because it's so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that actually has helped you to see the Sermon on the Mount in the biblical eternal context. So moving on from that, I just wanted to explore it. I, just, I, I would love to sit down and say, I wonder what the last 30-odd weeks have been like for you. What has it been like? Not what have you heard, what did you learn, but how did you experience this venture into the Sermon on the Mount? Now, I found it, uh, in one dimension, the most remarkable journey personally um, that I've ever, I think, you know, I, I experienced the same thing with Mark and Ephesians, but it's been a beautiful thing for me to delve into it and be in a church that's taking its time to unpack different dimensions of scripture because there's so much in scripture there's no need to be going off and talking about different things and series and all sorts of other stuff even though I appreciate those things there is so much in this word that the reality is I mean people probably get bored but um, or just want something a different in their diet but we could walk through this sermon on the mount for the rest of our days it just ha- and it, it's connected to so it's just threaded and connected to the whole of scripture, so it's been amazing as I've just discovered things and dimensions to it that I hadn't seen. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it's been really challenging. It's got intense. Uh, just the word is a way of just and, and it's it's very um, confronting. And if you're not and if you're not careful, you can start to see this. Uh, you can just get myopic on or just close in on this, this feeling that what Jesus is asking is actually too hard. I mean, it's there in the Word. In chapter 5, when he starts talking about what does it mean to walk in righteousness, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And you're talking about a pretty pious bunch. You're not talking about people who are just running in the middle of the road. They might know a scripture here because they heard it at the synagogue or there. You're talking about people who devote themselves. And yet we know, we, and we can glibly let it go by and think, yeah, what Jesus is talking about, the nature of the heart. Well, <laughs> it's, it's that which confronts us because we realize if they're in their discipline and their effort and their attention to detail could not enter the kingdom of God, you're starting to think, well, what does that mean for us? And then he comes along and he says, love your enemies. And straight after that, he says, therefore be f- oh, perfect. Because <laughs> I, I know that's not hard, but that's an easy one. Which, <laughs> be perfect because your heavenly father is perfect. I mean, that just resonates with thoughts of impossibility. And one of those is uh, forgive others is that your heavenly father has forgiven you. But if you do not forgive others, your heavenly father will not forgive you. Now, I know how you, you can frame that and you can really do some damage with it. Okay, so I'm aware of the issues that surround what does it mean to forgive and, and the barriers. You know, if people have been hurt, deeply hurt, actually the first thing is not that they need to forgive. It's actually that they need healing. 
and they need to understand God's justice. So I'm aware of that, but nevertheless, even that seems too hard. In fact, I know I've, I've sat with people who have said, I cannot forgive X, Y, Z. Too hard. Impossible. It's because some of the things that happen to us are so deep, affect us so deeply. It's just Jesus is asking too much. And you know, we get to Dave's preaching, just bringing out this narrow path, this difficult road. And you know, if you got to the end of last week and thought, oh, just this is, I don't know if I, I just think I just, I'm happy that we're finished <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount. I really want this wrapped up and gone because I feel like I'm buried. Well, part of it is actually getting perspective, but I want to talk about the nature of these problems. What is it about these problems? I mean, the uh, so I'm just going to. Sorry, I'm just gathering my thoughts. I was just thinking, I almost lost my... Okay, so that's right. I, I just wanted to highlight some problems. There's various problems that this sermon can present, and uh, I want to share a few of them. Firstly, um, is a problem of being raised in a Western world and the way in which we think. Uh, and so one of those dimensions or aspects in the way we think is linear. 24-7 growth. It's like we start at point A and we, want to, we always want to get... To, we're, we're looking to get to point Z... And it's linear. So we think progression is from point A through to point C. That's not how God thinks. Or at least that's not how he's created things. You'll notice that God has seasons and cycles. And have any of you ever felt like you're going round and round in circles with the Lord? You feel like you've been there at one issue and then he brings you back and then he brings you back. And you think after about 10 years, it's like, how many times have I just... Part of our problem is because we think, oh, if we start at point A, poor in spirit, we should just progress in a linear fashion to the glory. And yes, it does say in Scripture that we are taken from glory to glory, but the glory is the mountaintop, and what you don't realise is that there's all these valleys in between. <laughs> God, I think, works far more cyclically. And uh, you look at the Sermon on the Mount... Starts at poor in spirit, and as Brett was saying, it, it moves out and back. But at every point where he starts, Jesus starts talking about the law, and he says, uh, "Well, love your enemies," because that's a really good one. You're first confronted with this idea: "Oh, that's too hard, too much. I can't do this." And you know what? You're right. The problem is, if you have a linear way of thinking, you think that, "Oh, I've come to this point." And you can feel like, I just can't, I'm just, I can't make it. Here's the irony. That's exactly what God's trying to do in you. <laughs> He's trying to get you to come back to being poor in spirit. So you actually have to change the way you think. Repent. How does this work? Um, another way that... Um, Another problem that I find comes up is that when God starts speaking about these things, he, he brings it, it starts exposing us to sin and darkness in our own soul. And no one likes going there. Even if you have humility and yieldness and you're familiar and you've got someone you can really trust, it's never a comfortable thing. So we don't like it. And sometimes the things that God is trying to get to are just too 
difficult because we just we don't like what's down there. So we won't want to listen. We'd rather, uh, you know, if it seems too impossible, too hard, we just want to put it aside. Um, the third one, which, again, these topics, I just want to say up front that these things I'm just pointing to, but I realise that there are pastoral issues related to everyone. And the third one is when people have sinned against us. Now, we don't see it because we get wounded and then we create barriers and uh, with judgments and we, we believe lies or we make vows to protect ourselves and they get buried within us. And then the Lord comes along and says, forgive unless and if you don't forgive, I will not forgive you. And it's not just, it's not just hurting. We have not yet resolved things in our heart. So it's starting to dig up wounds of the past because we're at this really pointy end of the word and we know we can't progress and yet something in us is blocking us and it grieves us and it causes a lot of internal angst. And the pain sometimes is like, I just don't want to look at that. I need to move on too hard. And then the fourth one one comes, I don't think we really understand the grace of God. We talk about it all the time. You think you understand the grace of God. But I think we're a lot like the Galatians who we came in by the Spirit and yet we're trying to perfect things in our flesh. Because somehow when you came in, you, you came in by grace. But the problem with the way we've been raised up is that everything is by works. If you want to be someone, you have to work for it. If you want to be accepted, if you want to have a job, if you want to be a lawyer, if you want to be a sportsman, everything requires work. You have to become somebody to be accepted. And you don't realise how ingrained this is in your thinking until you come to the Sermon on the Mount, which takes you to a point where you're like, I can't work this out. And God's going, thank you. (laughs) You finally got it. You're poor. No one escapes this lesson. And it's not a one-off lesson. These are some of the problems that we have. And so they're some of the natures of the problems, and that leads us to what is the nature of the word then? Because we're looking at the word as if it's something we have to conform to, which is right, but our approach is not necessarily that great, and we don't like it when it's spoken, and it hurts. Well, first of all, you know... uh, well, no, I'm going to focus on Hebrews 4.12. This is uh, a scripture I learned early on, and it's a scripture I love. This is the ESV. And it's one of the ways in which the word of God is spoken. Now, I'm going to quote the Amplified. Um, it says, The word of God is alive and active. It's dynamic, energizing, powerful and effective. It penetrates between the spirit and the soul and the body, into the deepest parts of our nature, even to the joints and the marrow. So it's like a double-edged sword. That's right. It's like a double-edged sword that penetrates between spirit, soul, and body into the deepest parts of our nature, exposing, sifting, analysing, and judging the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. And everyone stands open and exposed, naked and defenceless before him to whom we must give an account. If it stopped there, I'd be quite terrified. 
We'll get to the second part in a little bit. But I wonder if some of the disruption that you've been experiencing over the last few weeks as we've journeyed through the Sermon on the Mount is because what you're actually experiencing is this word coming into you and it's starting to expose you. It's sifting you. God uses often this, this idea of sifting like the chaff and the wheat. It's like separating. It's judging you. God is judging your internal being and anything that doesn't conform to it, he's bringing it to your attention. It's being analysed. And then you're brought to this place where you realise as he speaks, I can't hide from him. Psalm 139 ought to be on everyone's heart and lips because it says, you know, though I go and, um, you know what? O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Now, this, you can accept this intellectually, but when you realize that everything in your heart and even the things you don't even know that's in your heart, he knows. Right? So he's sifting, and you think, well, this is, this is how do I cope with this? Like, what's, what's it doing? Well, the first thing that the word is doing, and it's awakening your consciousness to the inner workings of your being, isn't it? I mean, you come into the Christian walk. Okay, so I was 28. I came into the Christian walk, and there was a dramatic shift. <laughs> I became very aware of my behaviours that were blatantly sinful. And it was like overnight, just some of these things, would, they died that day. And then as I journeyed along, I realised God's just pointing out behaviour after behaviour, this outward working. And then after a while, he starts getting a little different. He says, all those thoughts and imaginations you've got, we need to deal with that. And he starts penetrating into that. And then I suddenly realised, all these thoughts and imaginations are coming from somewhere. <laughs> and there's like this, you know, in fact, like this just this well beneath me of myself that God is plunging into to extract, to expose, to dig out the darkness. But it's like, oh my goodness, I don't even know myself that well. We think we do. I think, I can't remember the quote. It says, I think, uh, I don't know who it was. It says, the greatest conceit to go is thinking that we know ourselves. Or the last conceit to go is to think we know ourselves. I wish I could remember who said it. Maybe someone knows that. But to stand before God and think that he, we can hide all our inner things from him is like... <laughs> And I don't think he's scored. I have this picture of the Lord just looking at us like little children and just seeing us do our things. And he's just like, yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> he's not in a hurry. He's got time. He made time. Makes us feel pressured, but he's cool with it. <laughs> it sensitizes you to things that do not conform to the word of God. And that's painful. When you realise you're not like him, like Jesus in this particular area or any area, it's like, oh, that's the word actually bringing light. It's the word of God acting in you. So you get to this point, and this is where we are still invited to play a part. 
Because when that happens and it gets uncomfortable, you know, people can often have a couple of responses. They can either start to feel condemned and just buried in like, I'm a failure. Or they'll harden their heart and go, yeah, don't want to go there. I'm happy going my own way. And neither of those are going to be very helpful for you. <laughs> but what God is doing, what is he doing? What is, what's, what's the purpose of the word here? Why, is he, why does he make it so sharp on the way in? <laughs> why does it literally feel like that, that surgeon's knife that cuts in? What's going on? It's because some of the stuff in us has to be opened up to be cleansed out. It hurts because we are finding light coming into darkness. It hurts because we're actually confronted with we're not all that. If you can't get past that, though, because you don't see the purpose of it, that's when you do things like harden your heart and, or get buried in depression and um, despair. And to me, that's demonic, really. Because it misses what God is trying to do. What is he trying to do? He's trying to bring healing to you. He's trying to restore your soul. He's trying to get you free from the sin that so entangles your life. But the first thing that has to happen is the word has to come into you and expose you. And it's actually, it's not just the written word that's in operation here. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's God's Spirit. So if you're hearing the word and it's going into you and you're feeling like this pointy edge is starting to poke and you say no, you're not resisting the word as some abstract thing. You're actually resisting Holy Spirit. Think about that for a moment. God is working in your life to bring you up into a place where you would confess your sins so that you might be cleansed and whole and brought into a new place and have restoration. And you're going, "Mm mm-mm. Because you are too... Now, forgive me for saying this. Some of you are going to get offended, but that's okay. You're too stubborn. You want to hang on to your sin because you're too afraid. You want to resist the Holy Spirit because you actually, for whatever reason, find some benefit in holding on to it. That may surprise you. You think, well, who wants to hang on to a sin in their life? Who wants to hang on to unforgiveness? No, you actually are getting a benefit from that. That's why you don't want to let it go. Yet God demonstrates his mercy and his kindness, and it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. So if you don't understand, we'll get to this, the nature of God, you're not going to struggle with the nature of the word, and you're actually going to be left in your sin. Does anyone want that? I don't. So this is what is so challenging, and this is why understanding the nature of God, which I'm going to step into, is really vital. Because you won't be compelled to walk with the Lord and to live out his life because you feel like you have to live up to a standard. Or you think like, he's this authoritarian God that if I get it wrong, I'm going to get punished. If that's your picture of God, it's, it's actually going to... It's, not only is it wrong, you're going to have to repent of that, <laughs> but it's actually going to drive you into a place where you actually miss life altogether. 
you know, I like, you know, John chapter 6 is this very thing. You know, sometimes when you find these difficult places you get to, sometimes our only response is like the disciples. Now, Jesus has been... I know this feels like a segue, but I feel like I need to go there. He's just fed 5,000 people. Obviously, it was great because the next day, everyone's running after him, trying to find him and saying, Lord, Lord, where have you been? And they're like, and Jesus turns to him and says, you're only here because you're hungry. All of a sudden, you've found a free vending machine that can give you all the food you want. You think this is a great deal. <laughs> Woohoo! And he starts talking about, I am the bread of life. And then he starts talking about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And all of a sudden, all these people just start disappearing. And then there's these words, John chapter 6, verse 60. He says, when many disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. How can we eat your flesh and drink your blood? And, and that's the only way we abide by you. It's like, like, I mean, even that to us is hard to understand. So if you think you're having trouble understanding what he means, that's okay, because they had trouble with it as well. Jesus, knowing in himself that these disciples were grumbling about this, okay, so Jesus, operating in the amazing discernment that he had, turns to them and says, do you take offense at this? Going straight to the heart. Then what if you were to see so then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no help at all. The words that I've spoken to are spirit and life. And they're confronted with this reality, and Jesus says, Do you want to go as well? Is this getting too hard for you? You want to go as well? And what does Peter say on behalf of the group? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Sometimes that's what it's like. But where are you going to go? What authority are you going to give your trust to if it's not the Lord? Because you will give your trust to an authority. Whether it's internally, you'll give it yourself to what you feel and you'll make that the authority in your life. Whatever you feel is what will determine what you'll do. Maybe it's your reasoning, your logic. You think you're very rational logic and you can just logic your way through life. And that's what's going to rule in your life. And, you know, how's that going to work for you? Or maybe it's an external authority. Maybe it's culture and society. Are you going to make that the authority in your life? Do you trust that they'll have your best intentions in mind? Do you think that the way they're going is the way to truth and life? Maybe it's tradition. Well, we probably in the West don't feel like we have much tradition. It's easier to see in others. Like the Jewish people, they have a very strong tradition. Catholics, you can see it. Protestants have a tradition, believe it or not. <laughs> um, other cultures have traditions. Is that what rules? Or is it going to be holy scripture? Maybe you think, oh, I don't like this. I'll go and choose the Quran because it's what billions of people have done. Or maybe it's the Vedas. Become a Hindu. Maybe it's Buddha's teachings. You will give your authority to something. And sometimes for me, it's like it gets hard and yet I know that Jesus is the only one who possesses the words of eternal life. And when life meets death, it causes disruption. But you have to know that even though it causes 
your pain and suffering, that God is working in you to redeem every aspect of your life. Because when you come into the reign of God, it's characterized by these three things. Uh, Righteousness, the kingdom of God is righteousness. In other words, it's right standing with God. You stand before him and you can have your shoulders back and your head high because you know everything is right between you and him. It's not this perfection of a legal perfection. It's a way of understanding that you, between you and God, it's all good. And he says then it's characterized by peace. This is in Romans 14. And joy in the Holy Spirit. Who wants joy in their life? Who wants peace? Do you know you can't get to joy if you have no peace? Have you noticed that? If your world is full of turmoil and just upside down, it's chaotic, no joy either. And actually, you can't have peace unless you somehow are made right with God. But this is what God is intending. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the nature of the kingdom. That's why when his word works, what's he trying to do? He's trying to get everything that's not right with you out so you can come into a place of peace both with God and with yourself and the world and experience the joy of the Holy Spirit. An abiding deep joy that is preceded by this overwhelming peace that comes from knowing you are right with God. This is the work of the Word. But to yield to the work of the Word, to make Jesus Lord of your life, you really have to come to an understanding of the nature of God. And one of the things you need to understand is just when you think God is done with you, it's actually there he's drawn nearest to you to meet you in the very place you thought I'm, it's over. I said at the beginning one of the most the thing that stirs my heart so much is and I can't I don't want to get past it but I feel like I'm on the mountaintop just gazing out at this amazing scenery. I'm looking at the Lord up in the heavens so majestic, so glorious, so far above us. And it's him who says, I come and abide. He dwells with those who are contrite. In other words, who feel they've been ground down to the dust. And he sits with the lowly. And he does that to revive them and to bring life into their heart and restore him. This is the nature of God. It's, to me, it's the most overwhelming thing that just keeps welling up in me. And then Psalm 113 talks about the same thing. Blessed be the name of the Lord forever, from this time forth and from ever, the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised, for the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. That seems the most right place he should be, right? Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high and looks far down on the heavens? So he's not just up in the heavens. He's looking down on the heavens and the earth. And then it says he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. 
Resurrection. Resurrection life. He makes them sit with princes and the princes are his people. He gives the barren woman a home and a family, making her the joyous mother of all children. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why? Because this is what he's like. Romans 2, 4 is that passage again. Don't you know that it is kindness that he leads you to repentance? If you're struggling with a Sermon on the Mount, I do encourage you to put it aside. Do it. Just put it aside. Just let it go and get into the Psalms or wherever in the Scriptures you like and ask the Lord to show him what he's like to you. I'm going to finish with (laughs) the way I started, one of my favourite passages in Scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians 5, and it's just this simple statement, and it somehow gripped me very early on in my Christian walk, and I'm very grateful for the God that he gave me. It says, for we are compelled by the love of Christ. We are compelled by the love of Christ. And for whatever reason, the Lord just made me understand that if anything is done that is out of a sense of duty or obligation or I just have to do this, you're not there yet. When you know the love of Christ, it compels you. Uh, It propels you. It makes you want to do the things that he does. It makes you hunger and thirst for righteousness because you know what he's like and his love that is shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. It just draws you into this place where you actually want to become holy and set apart for him. You want to know his righteousness. You want to purify yourself. You will actually sing the words with conviction, purify my heart. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold, as precious silver. Purify my heart. You actually will want that because you've discovered there's nothing more beautiful and freeing and restorative to your being than yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit who wants to take you from glory to glory until we see him again. You'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye and everything that is corrupt in you will be put off and he'll give you a a new imperishable undefiled body and he has a heritage or an inheritance preserved in heaven for you and you will experience what we only get to taste and see in this life the magnificence and the glory of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and your heart will be so full because you know there's nothing you'll know the words of Romans that nothing separated you from the love of Christ nothing you won't be living that by faith You'll know it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just give these people to you that they may discover the wonders of your person. They may be drawn into you by your intense, overwhelming and steadfast and unchanging love for them. I thank you, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you do that. 
that you answer the cries of our heart. May the cries of their heart be to know you. Help them overcome the things that think you are far off and distant, Lord. I just break those things right now. That's a lie. Do you know, if you think God is far from you, it's a lie. He's right there. He's with you. He never leaves you nor forsakes you. Interestingly enough, even when you go off the path, he's right there with you because he is a father and his desire is for you that you may come to know him more fully and deeply. May this word live in us, Lord, and continue to bear the fruit for which you have sent it, 30, 60, 100-fold, that we may continue to increase in our understanding of you and then may we go out bearing witness to the wonderful things you've done for us with praise on our lips and joy in our hearts because you are manifesting your kingdom in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so to you, Lord, we give you all the praise and the glory and the honour in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.